Hi and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan and as you're probably aware by now it is just me for this episode. Unfortunately the issues that we've been having have continued so Mark did an amazing job last week of recording his own episode just by himself after three tries of doing it together as well but we shall not go there we will not we will not sort of dwell on the past. It's going to be just me this week and we will try and get all of our issues sorted but the episode will then still be with you on Wednesday. So this episode is part one of a two-parter and it's going to also include some of our listeners thoughts and comments from the Facebook group. So it is a real shame not to have Mark here talking with me. Hopefully um, it doesn't kind of lose any of the impact not having the two of us but next week's episode will be back to both of us. Before I start, I just want to say a massive thank you to all of our listeners for joining us again and then also to our Patreon supporters who must know by now how grateful we are for them, but we will always say it every episode just because we are so grateful that you've chosen to come and support us with your hard-earned money. If you'd like to support us as well, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. Um, Thank you to everybody who gets in touch on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and especially because this episode is going to contain some listeners thoughts and also next week's episode will as well. You've really helped me to kind of shape the episode so thank you. So over today's episode and next week's episode we're going to be discussing a very emotive topic and this is how far a person should be allowed to go when they're defending their own home. It's an area of true crime that I find really interesting, kind of ever since I learned about Tony Martin's story. That's a case from the UK that I was a bit too young to have followed at the time. I have vague memories of kind of hearing about it possibly on the TV or radio, but I learned about it properly when he was released from prison because I was so interested in what could have gotten him to this point. This is a case that has been covered on TV dramas, podcasts and documentaries galore, so I have chosen not to cover it today. But if his is not a story you know very well, I do recommend that you watch the UK Channel 4 programme titled The Interrogation of Tony Martin, as I found this to be a really honest portrayal. So instead of talking about this case, which I expect people assumed would be covered, I have four cases to discuss, two from Australia one from the UK and one from the US. And as I said, some listener comments from a Facebook discussion thread. I'm sure that this doesn't really need to be said, but I'd like to remind you that the opinions discussed over this episode and the next are our own. So no hate if you disagree, please. And the Facebook discussion group thread will be open again for comments and discussions about the episodes and the cases that are included. I will open that up again after next week's episode so you'll have had all four cases to discuss if you want to. So today I'm going to be telling you about two cases which have similarities but are also very different. We will discuss a man from Australia named Benjamin Batterham and an American guy called Byron David Smith. I had put in here to ask Mark if he'd heard about either of the guys but I can't, he's not here. Have you heard of these cases? Is it something you've heard of before? let us know as well because I always try and find something that perhaps people might not have heard of. Before we begin I wanted to read out some of our listeners thoughts around the very basic question which I felt opened up the discussion of how far should a person go to defend their property, family and or their life. 
So Janice said, Hi Bethan, as unreal as it may sound in my corner of Canada, the criminal can sue the homeowner after committing a crime. And Janice left a link on her comment that's well worth reading. Anthony said, if there is proof someone has broken into your property to either steal or harm a family member, then there should be no limit on the action you can take. The intruder has then took the risk, knowing full well that they might not leave the property alive. I sleep with a cosh next to my bed, and when it comes to protecting my wife and my daughter, there is no lengths I won't go to to make sure they are safe. John, if it's just property, I don't think it's acceptable to physically harm any intruder. If the lives of the people or the animals in the home are at risk, all bets are off. Do whatever is necessary. Jen, this is such a difficult one and I think it depends on the circumstances and who is present in your home. If someone clearly means you harm and is armed and aggressive, then naturally you would defend yourself and those in your home, especially if you had a child. I'd argue this is self-defence though, rather than manslaughter and certainly not murder, but that may depend on evidence and the judicial system slash witnesses. For me personally, I have a very young child and I would go absolutely apeshit beyond belief great phrase, if someone broke into my home and she was vulnerable. They have the castle law in the US or something, don't they, where you are within your legal right to use deadly force on your property, i.e. your home is your castle, which is interesting and I'm sure that there have been some, perhaps high profile cases where the castle law has been used in court. So to kind of follow on from Jen's comments, I'm actually going to look at castle law towards the end of this episode. Carol said, my dogs would see to them first, would they be prosecuted? Good point. And Gina said, I came home one day and walked in on an intruder in my bedroom. I yelled at him and he ran out the back door. Had he pulled a weapon, I don't know that I would have reacted in the same way. That is really quite chilling and fair play Gina for standing up for yourself. Vicky said, it really depends on the situation. I would say reasonable force, in inverted commas, would be adequate in self-defence, but then there are going to be people with a different line of what is reasonable force. I think you do have to assume someone breaking into your property could potentially mean to harm you as well, so I don't necessarily think it's wrong to arm yourself with a knife or a cricket bat or something in defence, if you have the chance. If an intruder only intends to steal, then I wouldn't think it was worth the danger of fighting back. But if they've broken into attack, then that's a whole other matter and you should absolutely use some amount of force to save yourself. I can't reasonably see how it could be determined as murder if an intruder fights you and ends up dead, because you didn't ask for them to break in, you presumably didn't organise or intend death. Manslaughter at the most, but proven self-defence usually isn't punishable, as far as I know. And so I wanted to stop there with Vicky's comments because that's really going to tie into our second case a bit later. So remember that. So first of all, I really enjoy doing an episode where there's a couple of cases. If there's not lots of information available, yet I feel like the story is one that I want to share. And this case from Newcastle, Australia is one that I just couldn't ignore when it happened. And when we decided to go global, I wanted to discuss it, but I didn't feel that there was enough to create a whole episode around this. And then whilst researching for this episode, the trial concluded. So it was in the news again. And what I find really interesting is it highlights the extreme way that someone may react when they're faced with an intruder. Benjamin Batterham was at home having some drinks with a friend on the Easter weekend of 2016 when Ricky Slater came into his house. Benjamin's partner and their baby were next door and Benjamin was celebrating his birthday with some drinks with a friend and they'd been playing some music and it was about 3am when Benjamin heard a noise and went to investigate. Ricky Slater had come in through a side door and made his way along a corridor. 
and when Benjamin saw him, he was at the entrance to his daughter's room. Ricky had stolen some items from the family home, including a handbag, and when Benjamin discovered him, Ricky was also carrying a shoulder bag. Benjamin wouldn't have known this, but the bag contained three knives, and it has been reported that along with the knives, the bag also contained a pair of scissors, three new Apple iPhones, a smartwatch, four MGMA slash ecstasy tablets, two prescription pills, and an opiate used to treat heroin addicts called for boxing film, plus $570 in cash. So Benjamin had seen this intruder at the entrance to his daughter's room. He saw Red and he chased the burglar out of the house and into the street. Now out in the street, he caught up with the man and he put him into a chokehold and repeatedly punched him in the head until the police arrived. Now this is where the really emotive and controversial part of the case is. As we hear from some of our listener comments, and what we will hear from some others next week, is people have very different views on what is reasonable force and what lengths you should or could go to. So, the first question that I have for our listeners, and that I had to ask myself, and that I was going to ask Mark, is, is what Benjamin did right? He's chased that burglar out. Now, should he have just left it there? Or was he right to try and get his belongings back? Was he right to tackle that man and also attempt to subdue him? And did he go too far with the punching in the head? I think it's really hard to decide without being there and without knowing all the facts. However, I can definitely understand that this man was at his daughter's bedroom door. And that's really difficult when you've got a child to kind of think, well, as Jen said, it depends on who you have in your home. You know, I would go absolutely apeshit is what she said. Someone broke into my home and she was vulnerable talking about her daughter. And I think this is the case. His daughter wasn't at home. However, that's where he saw this intruder. And that's how it kind of, to me, feels like it continued. Without knowing all the facts, I'm simply going to report on how the altercation continued according to the evidence from the trial. And then let's see if any of our listeners perhaps change their feelings around this. So Benjamin was heard to say, you're done for, mate. The cops are coming. And there are recordings of the emergency services being called. In the background of that call, you can hear a man's voice saying, I'm going to kill you. Neighbours came out and tried to get Benjamin to let Ricky go, but he refused. And Ricky was telling Benjamin, I can't breathe, I can't breathe during the struggle. But Benjamin was in a rage, shouting, you motherfucking piece of shit. How dare you break into my daughter's bedroom? She's only seven months old. When Benjamin did relax his grip, Slater bit him on the hand, which made Benjamin even more angry and more aggressive. A neighbour claims that she heard Benjamin say, I'm going to crack your head like an Easter egg. Benjamin was bitten twice, he had his tooth chipped and his cheekbone was injured during the struggle. Off-duty police officer Detective Inspector Peter Mayon came out of a house nearby and grabbed Benjamin and said, let him go. Ricky Slater was still struggling and saying, I can't breathe, let me go. But Benjamin refused, saying, no, he will try to run. Peter Mayon said that after a while Ricky's face was pressed to one side on the ground and he was not struggling or speaking as much as before. Now this whole thing lasted for about eight minutes and when the police arrived, two constables handcuffed Slater who was now motionless. He was unresponsive so he was uncuffed and placed into the ambulance where he was given CPR and taken to the city's John Hunter Hospital. Benjamin was also put into an ambulance. He was reportedly unsteady on his feet and still aggressive and angry. And en route to hospital, he said, where is he? Give me two minutes with him. I'll kill the dog. Ricky Slater had scarring to his heart because of regular drug use, 
was obese and had liver disease. He suffered a cardiac arrest after the attack but was revived by paramedics and then he had a further two cardiac arrests in hospital and he died the next day. Benjamin spent two months in prison after his arrest before he was granted bail and then his trial took place this year with the verdict being read this November. At the beginning of the trial, the judge, Justice Desmond Fagan, spent several hours directing the jury and told them that the chokehold on Mr Slater would normally constitute an assault, but they needed to decide whether it was an unlawful act during a citizen's arrest or a lawful act. The prosecution claimed that Benjamin had choked Ricky Slater to death, but his defence claimed that the man had died due to organ failure as a result of his obesity an undiagnosed heart condition, and the toxic levels of the meth that was in his system. Benjamin's defence barrister, Winston Terracini, SC, had argued that Batterham had every legal right to do what he did, and there was no proof that his actions had caused Slater's death. He said that the only reason Benjamin had chased and tackled Ricky was because the thief had tried to run from Benjamin to escape justice. The Crown Prosecutor Wayne Creasy SC did admit that he thought Benjamin was within his rights to chase and detain Slater, but he went too far and that he was in a frenzy. He said that if the jury did not find Batterham guilty of murder, he should be convicted of manslaughter because his actions had been dangerous and unlawful. Medical experts called to give evidence during the two-week trial had differing opinions on what caused Slater's death, so one clinical toxicologist told the jury he believed Slater, high on meth, had died of asphyxiation from being strangled, whereas another had disagreed and said Ricky Slater suffered a heart attack due to the levels of methamphetamine in his system and his existing heart condition. A top forensic pathologist testified that the research showed levels of 0.54 milligrams per litre and that was shown to cause death, but Ricky Slater's death could not solely be blamed on his drug toxicity and there were other factors in place. These include the fact that he was held in a face-down position, that he was restrained, there may have been neck compression. Benjamin didn't testify, but his letter to the jury was read out in court and it included, I never intended to cause Mr Slater any serious harm. I wanted to apprehend him and get back what was stolen. I admit I was angry and I hit him, but I was only trying to keep him from getting away. He was constantly struggling and fighting. He bit me on the arm. All I wanted was for him to stop. So if you were on that jury, what would you have decided? The Supreme Court found that Benjamin Button was not guilty of murder and he was not guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Benjamin said outside Newcastle Supreme Court after the verdict, I'm very happy about the verdict about not being guilty and it's been a long couple of years and finally it's over. Now it's time to move on and get on with life. So... I found that really, really interesting. And there was a couple of additional points to this case as well, information that the jury didn't know. So I wanted to present this case to you as the jury would have heard it. However, I just couldn't ignore these points after. Ricky Slater was a convicted criminal who had only been out of prison for four months when he broke into Benjamin's home. His past was checkered, to say the least, with drugs, assault, driving and theft offences in his past. And in 2007, he had raped a 16-year-old girl, punching her in the head, putting his hands over her mouth to stop her from screaming and telling her that he would stab her if she didn't keep quiet. Ricky Slater was also found guilty of fraud and aggravated breaking and entering after he was charged with forcing his way into a home to steal a wallet, a handbag and a car. The jury wasn't told about Slater's criminal history during the trial after it was ruled inadmissible. But I do find that really interesting to kind of bring to your attention. 
So does that change how you feel about the case? Does that change how, what your reaction was? Obviously, if you were on the jury, you would have had to make the decision based purely on the initial information you were given. But this is someone who is very, very dangerous. So it's quite interesting to see whether or not it changes your point of view. So on to our next case. And for me, this is even more controversial and emotive. Perhaps you're going to have a different opinion to me. But this is how I went when I first heard about this case. The guy was in the right. Yep, still in the right. Yeah, still in the right. Hmm. It's a bit dodgy, but okay, I'll, I'll allow it. Hang on, what? No, 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 no. Wonder if that's intrigued you. So 65-year-old Byron David Smith lived alone in his home in Little Falls, Minnesota. Prior to the events of the 22nd of November 2012, Thanksgiving, he was the victim of burglaries at least half a dozen times over the preceding three months. Now this is a point of contention as he'd only reported one previous burglary to police and investigators only found evidence of two previous burglaries. However, there is anecdotal evidence that locally there were a number of burglaries happening at this time. Among the items stolen from Byron were $4,000 in cash, his father's prisoner of war watch, coins from a collection and a chainsaw. He'd apparently discussed the burglaries with his neighbours, who had also been victims, and there was some notes on some of the information that I found that some of his guns had been stolen as well. Byron was retired from the US State Department and he'd spent his life travelling around working as a security engineer. And because of these burglaries, and I mean, he's saying that he was a victim of at least half a dozen burglaries, he began to wear a holstered gun when he was at home and became really paranoid. He installed a surveillance system and his friends had to ring the bell, wait a specific length of time and then knock in a certain way just to be allowed in. He was that paranoid. So first up, I'm going to give you a short account of the events as told to the police by Byron Smith. He was in his home alone on Thanksgiving when two burglars broke in and, wearing hoodies pulled tight around their faces, they made their way downstairs into his basement where he was hiding in fear that he would be attacked. He shot them, admittedly more times than he needed to, but until he knew that they were dead. But, he explained, he was not willing to ask if they had a gun, he was worried the intruders would get up and pull out a weapon, and so he just fired. He also said of one of the intruders he didn't want her to suffer, so when he saw that she was dying and gasping, he fired a killing shot. And he also said one of them had laughed at him, which in the moment really riled him. And he said, quote, If you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you go again. Byron then waited, scared that the intruders may have had accomplices who would show up, until the next morning when he went and notified a neighbour. But I'm sure you can tell that there is more to this story than what I've told you. The burglars in this story were Hayley Kiefer, aged 18, and her cousin, Nicholas Brady, aged 17. There is some evidence that they had committed the previous break-ins, and Brady was actually being investigated for prior burglaries, including one earlier on this specific day. Byron definitely believed that these were the people who had stolen from him previously. He had hired some kids from town the previous year, in the summer, but after they messed with his tractor, he refused to hire them for work again the following summer, and this was when things started to go missing. He was certain that he knew the kids had been robbing him, and he knew that it was them. He was visiting friends nearby, so he drove his van down the road and parked at his neighbour's home. And a short while later, the surveillance video shows the teens casing the property. When Byron had seen Kiefer driving towards his home, he'd made a comment to his friend that he needed to get ready for her, and he went back to his house. 
He left his car at the friend's house so it would look like he was still out and when he got home he turned on his recording equipment and removed some light bulbs in the basement. He positioned himself in a chair that was obscured from view and waited with his snacks, some water and a novel. Due to the recording equipment, what follows has been verified by the audio. Byron Smith is heard talking to himself in what has been described as a rehearsal, saying he did his civic duty and asking to see a lawyer. A window was broken upstairs and Brady climbed into the house. Byron Smith then waited in silence for 12 minutes and at this point Brady began to come down the stairs into the basement and as I said before we know this from audio recordings. Byron Smith shot Brady twice on the stairs and once in the head after he fell to the bottom of the stairs. He then made taunting remarks to Brady's body wrapped it up in a tarp that he had waiting and dragged the lifeless body into another room of the basement. Byron Smith then went upstairs, but he did not call the police. And the audio then shows that 10 or 15 minutes later, he ran back down into the basement, reloaded his weapon and took up his previous position in the obscured chair. Minutes later, Kiefer entered the home and could be heard calling out to her cousin, She then headed down the stairs and once again Byron Smith shot his intruder. She was wounded and you can hear on the recording her screaming things like, Oh God, and I'm sorry. You can also hear Byron calling her derogatory names. He dragged her into the other room, tossing her body on top of her cousins and shot her one final time under the chin and this was the shot that killed her. Byron waited until the next day to notify the police of the shootings, claiming he didn't want to bother the police on Thanksgiving and ruin their time with their families. He then spoke to the police, and initially it seemed like he'd be able to claim he acted in self-defence. He said he was alone when he heard a window break, and then he heard someone walking around upstairs. When the intruder descended, he saw feet, legs, then hips, and then just shot, and the intruder fell face up. Smith could see it was a young male, and he said... I shot him in the face, I wanted him dead. He said he tried to calm down but blood was pounding in his ears and he heard more footsteps upstairs and he felt ganged up on. He explained that he shot the next intruder, wearing a black hoodie tightly drawn around her face, in much the same way. And a quote from him was, My thinking was, I'm not going to ask if there's a gun. And he also said, Yes, I fired more shots than I needed to. I was no longer willing to live in fear. Byron said he ended up hiding in the basement through the night and into the next morning before calling a neighbour because he was afraid of an accomplice. He also thought that the girl's father might come looking for her. The first couple of hours I was just shaking and I gradually shifted into worrying. I was pretty much afraid to do anything. He decided, dead is dead, so what good would reporting it right away do? What would it change? And saying in his statement, although his Thanksgiving was ruined, he didn't have to ruin it for others by calling the authorities that day. Now the turning point in this case was when Byron explained to the police about his extensive surveillance, which they of course looked at, and then rather than this being a simple case of self-defence, they were faced with a pre-planned attack where they had audio of Byron muttering as they lay dead on his basement floor things to his intruders like, I don't see them as human, I see them as vermin, and telling Hayley, you're dying bitch. So here is some information on the timings of the event. The recording includes the sound of breaking glass, presumably Brady breaking the window and crawling in. From the sound of the window breaking to when Brady comes down the stairs, seven minutes passed. Smith could have called the police by this point. Byron Smith shot Brady three times, telling him, you're dead, according to the recording. And within 18 seconds came the sound of Brady's body being dragged by a tarp 
into the other room. Ten minutes after the last shot, as Smith sat in his chair, Kiefer's voice can then be heard on the tape calling out Nick. Twelve seconds passed and then she begins down the stairs. You hear the first shot and the sound of her body falling down the stairs. Byron's rifle jammed and you can hear the click and Byron saying, oh, sorry about that. And as Haley is moaning, Byron Smith switches to a revolver. After the sh- second shot, Haley says, oh my God. And on the third shot, oh God. And after the fourth shot, she utters, oh. You can hear Byron telling her you're dying and calling her a bitch. And there are sounds of her being dragged into the other room where she is heard gasping. One minute and 15 seconds later, again calling her a bitch, Byron fires a shot. Now, unlike other cases we've covered, for example, the Dunblane shootings, this was not over in a blur and a matter of minutes. Byron Smith had a number of opportunities to change the outcome. Minnesota law allows a person to take a life to avert death or great bodily harm, or to prevent a felony in his or her home. And so at his trial, the jury had to decide whether Byron Smith was guilty of first-degree murder or second-degree murder, and they were instructed to consider the circumstances and whether it was a decision that, in in inverted commas, a reasonable person would have made in light of the danger perceived. So how would you have answered that? Personally, at the very beginning, my, my thinking was they broke into his home, but he had so many opportunities to call the police. He had opportunities to shoot them and then find out if they had weapons or not. They're going to pull them if they've got them. He had time to get out of the house and call the police and then they would have been caught in the act. So at the trial, the prosecution portrayed Smith as a vigilante who had been sat waiting in his basement with his loaded weapons, water and food, an audio recorder running and his book to read. Whereas the defence said that whilst the fact that Byron had shot the two teens was not in dispute, he was not criminally responsible for their deaths. The prosecution argued that Byron had crossed the legal line into pure execution when he shot the second intruder ten minutes after the first one. But the defence reminded the jury that if the pair hadn't broken in, there wouldn't be a trial at all. The jurors took just three hours to deliver their guilty verdict, being pretty much all in agreement from the beginning, and Byron David Smith was convicted of four murder counts for shooting the two teenagers, two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Some of the jurors have said that they actually believed that Smith waited a full day before reporting the shootings because he wanted to see whether any other burglars would show up, even unscrewing bulbs from the fixtures as night fell so they wouldn't be able to see him in his basement. One of the jurors said, that was a major issue for us. We agreed that we might have been part of plan to see if there were more people coming, possibly, or to possibly clean something up or get rid of something. I definitely thought that everything he had done was pre-calculated. And the jury said that Byron's defence might have been more plausible if it appeared that he had just been doing something around the house when people broke in. They also questioned why didn't he call 911 when he heard the break-in initially. Now, the law allows a homeowner to use deadly force whilst in danger, but Byron Smith's danger had clearly passed. Byron Smith's friend and neighbour, Bill Anderson, was visibly upset after the verdict, and he had testified in the trial about how fearful Smith had become after repeated break-ins, and that his friend was the victim. He said to press, Byron Smith is one of the nicest gentlemen you're ever going to meet. If one of you people would have a flat tyre in front of the courthouse today, that gentleman would go and buy you a new tyre and send you on your way. 
And after the verdict was given, the county sheriff, Michael Wetzel, reminded people, this isn't a case about whether you have the right to protect yourself in your home. You very clearly do. That's a given. Rather, this was a case about where the limits are before or after a threat to you or your home. And in this case, a jury decided there are limits, then they decided where they are. And I think that is the key point to this. Yes, he was well within his rights to defend himself. And actually, he felt very victimised and he felt that he'd been attacked multiple times. He was so paranoid, but he just took it too far. If you go online, if you go on Facebook, you will see such a varied amount of comments from people either calling him a hero or a murderer. And it is black and white. People either agree with what he did or don't agree with what he did. And it's really interesting for me because... I did start hearing about the case and thinking, do you know what? I'm on his side. I'm on his side. And then I just thought, oh my God, you've lost me. It's ridiculous. So finally, I wanted to talk about castle doctrine or castle law or the defense of habitation law. This basically states that a person's abode or any legally occupied place, for example, their vehicle or their home, is a place where that person can defend themselves using force up to and including deadly force without being prosecuted. So you should be able to feel safe within your home. And if someone threatens your safety and security at home, you can defend yourself. It dates back to the idea of defending your own castle and it is used in the USA mainly, but there are variations across the world. In the US, there are levels to the law as well, so you may find it easier to get a verdict of justifiable homicide in self-defence when the person was intruding, as this includes trespassing. The law may ask whether it was safer for you to have retreated or fled, and the law asks whether you felt you were in immediate danger. Law enforcement officers breaking into a home is separate, so probably quite an obvious thing to say, but this is one of the reasons why they have to announce themselves, among many reasons. The idea of the justifiable amount of violence used will always vary case to case, but with Byron, he did not need to continue shooting once the threat was down, and he had plenty of time to call the police before Haley arrived. This is not a black and white law whereby a person breaking in can be killed, and within the final point, Byron potentially crossed a line, as you are not covered by castle doctrine if you entice someone into your home and then attack them. Now, this is a really tough part for me because they were planning to break him. Does it mean that you have enticed them in if you make it look like you're out? So he'd left his truck at his friend's house, he'd unscrewed some light bulbs. Does that count as enticing? Personally, I don't think so, because if that's enticing people in, loads of people would have turned up. These two were already going to do that. However, some people believe that that part of the law is another part where he kind of crossed a line. What are your thoughts on that side? So in some states in the US, if somebody breaks into your home, you're allowed to shoot them dead. Other states, such as Florida, have a stand your ground law, which in simple terms means you can defend yourself in any place you are legally allowed to be. But Minnesota has what's known as a reasonable person doctrine. It comes down to what a reasonable person would see in this situation, and that is how the jury have to make decisions. So legal analysts have stated that the initial shootings most likely would have been justified under Minnesota's castle law. It was the subsequent shots that were not justified once any threat had been removed. And a quote from Sheriff Wetzel said, the law doesn't permit you to execute somebody once a threat is gone. However, as I'm sure you've kind of gathered from what I've said before, this case really divides people. 
people on online forums calling him a hero, people who condemn the burglars and praise him. He was 65 years old and they were teenagers. We have talked before on this show about feeling persecuted and bullied, but it was in a Patreon episode about a guy called Gary Newlove, so many of you may not have heard that episode. So I thought I'd repeat what it reminds me of. And in Peep Show, which is a brilliant TV show, David Mitchell's character is scared by kids hanging out at the shops and they intimidate him when he gets off the bus from work. Now, he's a grown man. They're teenagers. I think they're about 15 or something. But one day he flips out and he chases them with his umbrella and it looks like a weapon in a way and it looks a bit ridiculous to see this grown man frightened of children and he chases them and it's all very odd. But I get it. And whilst I do not in any way condone David Smith's actions on that Thanksgiving, and whilst it may seem strange that a man with his training and military background could be so worked up by two teenagers, I can completely understand how it came about that he flipped and decided enough is enough. It's just very interesting that he didn't decide to use that surveillance footage to give it to the police and give them enough evidence to prosecute these guys. Instead, he told the police about the surveillance footage and ended up ultimately giving them the evidence to convict him. So what did you think about these cases, guys? I found them really, really interesting personally because it's how far would you go and you just don't know until you're in that situation and I pray that none of us are in that situation that we have to find out. However, it's good to know that the law will protect you if you're defending yourself. So that's something important to me and it's important to me now as a new mum if someone was to break into my home, it's not just me and it's not just my other half to think about. There's also a a baby who can't defend themselves. But as we'll look at next week, the ramifications of what happens when you take the law into your own hands or when you react, it can be really far reaching. Thank you so much for listening this week. I again apologise that it's just myself and not Mark as well. I really hope you've enjoyed the episode and get in touch on Facebook, etc. I'll open up the discussion thread next week once the both episodes have come about and I'll pop some comments on so that we can talk about the four different cases and see what your thoughts are. Um, so I never know how to end this when it's just me. So I'll just sign off and say thanks for listening. We'll be back next week and see you soon. Cheers. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.